I'd love to look with you this morning in the Gospel of John. If you have a copy of the Scriptures, you can turn there. We're nearing the end of looking at this Gospel together, uh, at least for this year. And I just simply want to remind you, if you look at the end of this chapter that we're looking at today, verse 31 of chapter 20, uh, you might remember something that we've tried to state over and over and over. Remember that there were lots of other things that Jesus said. There were lots of other things that Jesus did. But John recorded all these 21 chapters so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing, we might have life in his name. That's what verse 31 tells you of John 20. So this whole year, we've been thinking about this concept together. Uh, life with Jesus. What does that mean? What does that look like? What is, what is that? And so this morning, we come to another installment of that. Let's look together at John 20. I'm going to read the first 18 verses. This is a really exciting part of the gospel. And I guess if you haven't figured this out, I'll go ahead and tell you explicitly, I love John's gospel. It's probably my favorite gospel. Matthew intimidates me more than, the, than all of them, but I love John's gospel. Um, but listen to this. This is an amazing account of the reality that our Jesus is alive. He really is alive. We didn't just confess that. We just, we believe that. Listen to this. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped and looked to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in, the, in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you are alive. 
And we pray today that we might understand in new ways what that means for our faith. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would continue to wrestle with us, that you would help us to understand that it is fine to bring our doubts to you, to question, to wander, to be amazed, to revel in all the above and everything else. You are at work in us. And we thank you, Father. We thank you that our Savior returned to you. We thank you that your plan of redemption and salvation is being worked out. Help us to be astonished in new ways that you love people like us. For your glory we pray. Amen. The first thing I want you to know about this passage is this. I'm going to have two points today, but here's my first one. Faith is a gift. Faith is a gift. Now I want to think about this story with you. Let's go back through this story and see how it works out. Let's see what it's telling us. Let's see how it's making us think about faith. Faith is a gift. Think about this story. The text begins in the first two verses. Mary is the first one to the tomb. She decides to go to the tomb early on Sunday morning, perhaps as the sun is coming up over the horizon. She arrives at the tomb and she sees that the stone is rolled away. And her thought is, according to verse 2, she thinks that someone has stolen the body. So she's worked up. She's not exactly sure what to do. She thinks that the body of Jesus has been taken away. And so she decides, well, I'm the first of the tomb. This is my observation. I need to go tell the others. So she runs back and tells John and Peter and probably others that the body is gone, that someone has taken the body of Jesus. And so John and Peter hear this from Mary, and they decide that they are going to, if you notice what the text says in verse 3 through 10, run to the tomb. Now, I love this little detail that John writes. John is faster than Peter. Did you catch that? They both are running to the tomb, but John makes sure that he says, but I beat Peter, you know? So he gets to the tomb first, and he sees that the stone is rolled away from the mouth of the tomb, and he looks into the tomb, and he sees what's going on in the tomb a little bit. He makes some observations, but he doesn't go into the tomb. He stays outside, right? He's there looking. And then Peter shows up. And, I mean, I feel like I know Peter really well, and I know this is somewhat speculative, but my sense is that Peter gets to the tomb because he was after John, because John was faster than him, and I can just picture in my mind him kind of nudging John out of the way and just going in the tomb, right? Well, you might have gotten here first, John, but I'm going inside the tomb. So he goes inside the tomb, and he starts paying closer attention to what is in the tomb. Now, here's where things get absolutely fascinating, and we can just barely scratch the surface this morning. If you look in verse 1 and 2, it says that Mary saw what was inside the tomb. What that's communicating is that when she looked inside the tomb, the data crossed her eyes. But when John and Peter get to the tomb, it's a completely different word. They actually begin to reason and wrestle with what they saw inside the tomb. So here's what they saw. 
Do you notice in verses 6 through 8, it talks about how these linen cloths were folded? Did you read that? Now, there are lots of scholars that have written a lot of things about this. So I'm going to try to collate all of it and bring it together and try to make it as clear as I can. And remember, we're just scratching the surface. What they saw inside the tomb were everything about the way that Jesus had been taken care of and treated after his death. They saw all of it as it was minus a body. So remember that Jesus was basically mummified. So he was taken off of the cross and he was wrapped like a mummy, all right? And John and Peter are looking inside the tomb and they see everything wrapped up. What you have is everything folded. What that means is it's in its original state. Everything that was wrapped around Jesus was there without a body. Matter of fact, it makes it very clear there was something that was wrapped around his head and that was in a different location, right? So you have his body that would be completely wrapped. It's all there minus the body. And what would be wrapped around his head is right there, but it's separated from that body. In other words, exactly how Jesus was laid in the tomb is exactly how what they saw was, was laid out, except the body wasn't there. Remember, we learned from other accounts that they put like 100 pounds of spices and care for Jesus' body. And John and Peter were wrestling with this. Imagine, they come to the tomb and they see all the wrapping there, but there's no body. You see, if Jesus had just revived, what would have happened? He would have ripped through all of the wrapping, you see? That's not what he did. Matter of fact, remember in John 11 when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, when he said, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus awakens and begins to come forward, Jesus says, hey, some of you go help that guy get unwrapped. Remember that? You see, what Jesus was wrapped in was not ripped up or torn. It was all together. His body just wasn't inside. And they were reasoning to themselves and thinking, well, something amazing must have happened. Because everything is exactly like it was from three days ago. So they started thinking, well, something amazing must have happened. And surely they thought to themselves, well, there's no possible way that this would have been, that his body would have been stolen. I mean, who in the world would roll away this stone, come in, and unwrap everything, take a naked body, a naked cadaver, and then wrap something all back up and leave it? Whether they were a friend or an enemy, how in the world could anybody steal that and leave it like that? They knew something profound had happened, and they were reasoning about it, and they were wrestling with it because the implications of the fact that Jesus was alive changes everything. So here they are looking inside the tomb, thinking about what's going on, and then they end up recognizing that something had happened. So they leave, as verse 10 tells you. They go back to their homes. But look at what we have next. But Mary stays. Mary stays. 
So we understand that Mary came to the tomb first. She went back to tell Peter and John and others that the body was gone. And sometime when John and Peter were at the tomb investigating and thinking and reasoning out loud, Mary shows back up. John and Peter leave and Mary is there weeping. She even enters into the tomb and continues to weep. Except she sees something else. What she sees when she goes into the tomb is not only the mummified body there without Jesus himself, but she sees two angels. And they look at her and say, Mary, what what are you seeking? And she says, I'm here for my Lord. Somebody has taken him. And you can imagine how worked up Mary must have been. She was weeping and crying. She sees and she assumes that someone's stolen the body. She sees inside the tomb. And these people ask her what's going on. And she just, somebody has taken the body. And then she turns around to leave. And someone is there that she thinks is, you know, like the gardener. And she even says to him, hey, have you taken the body? Because if you've taken it, then I want to go get it and bring it to where it belongs. I want to go grab it. I want to take care of it. And then that person that she's talking to says to her what? Mary. And who does she realize it is? Jesus. And she starts clinging to him. You can just imagine she has gone from weeping outside the tomb to having a conversation with angels to turning around and seeing this guy who she doesn't know who he is, assumes that he's a gardener, and it's actually the risen Christ. And here she is clinging to him to the point that Jesus says, Mary, you don't need to cling to me. I am going to go to my father. And I need you to go tell everyone else that I'm about to ascend and go back to my Father, to your God and to my God. Mary, you need to take this message back to the others. Now, just as a quick sidebar, like I said, we're just barely scratching the surface on this. you got to understand how incredible this must have been for Mary. You can read what her background is, her background story. Mary was more than likely a prostitute. That was her background. And she was demon-possessed. She had nothing. She had no status. She was looked upon as a known sinner in the community in which she lived. Everybody knew what she was about. And God came into her life and changed everything about her. And now here she is, the first to the tomb. And there's a sense in which, one man I read said, that there's a sense in which for this period of time, she was the witness to the message of Christianity. Think about that. Peter and John didn't get it yet. As we'll see in the other accounts, they continued to wrestle and, and wonder what really happened. But Mary believed. Mary knew, even though she didn't know it was Jesus right offhand, but she knew his voice. Her life had been radically changed, and now she gets to go back and deliver the message to the other, to the others, to the other followers of Jesus. What a special privilege she had. What a special privilege. 
she knew the love and the grace of God so, so deep. So deep. She was never the same once God came into her life. And it was radical. Talk about new life. Talk about being known for one way of life by a lot of people in the community at one time for a period of time. And then not long after that, being known for a completely different way of life. That was Mary. And here she is taking it all in, knowing that her Savior was alive, even though she was still wrestling. Well, faith is a gift. How do we know that? I want to give you three things. Three things. The first one might be obvious. The closest people to Jesus didn't immediately get it. Those that have been with Jesus for several years who had heard his teaching, observed his miracles, Jesus had told them over and over, I must suffer and die and be crucified and then be raised from the dead, right? He told them that over and over. So what happens? Jesus suffers and dies. And the disciples aren't like running to the tomb. They don't get it. They don't get it. And when they show up, whether it's Mary or John or Peter, they don't show up at the tomb and immediately think, oh, this is exactly what Jesus said, do they? The ones who were closest to Jesus don't get it. Faith has to be a gift. It's not something that we just conjure up within us. It has to be given to us. Jesus had to call Mary's name. Jesus had to approach John and Peter and the others, which we'll read about in the weeks to come. Faith is a gift. If the closest people to Jesus who observed him and listened to him and saw him, if they didn't immediately think that this was the risen Christ, who else would? Faith has got to be a gift. Here's the second reason. It's this. Our filter is all jacked up. The filter through which we process everything, the filter through which we interpret what we see and what we experience, yeah, it's all messed up in all of us. Our filter is all jacked up. Think about the gospel accounts. Jesus' encounters with people are dominated by two groups, two groups of people. One we'll call the churchy people. Remember, we've talked about them an awful lot this summer when we went through the Sermon on the Mount. And you know what their grid is, their filter for interpreting everything? They are looking for a moral teacher. They want someone who's going to correct everyone else and say, these are the rules, go and do them. That's what the churchy people, that's how they filtered everything Jesus said and did. They filtered it through, we want to know what the right thing is, we want to know the rules, and we want to hold everyone accountable. And Jesus, sometimes we think you're breaking the rules, right? They were the churchy people. They were super religious. Outwardly, they looked so good, and what they wanted is for Jesus to tell them exactly what to do and to enhance everything that they were already doing and affirm all that they were. That's why they got upset at Jesus, because he didn't do that. And the other folks that 
were generally around Jesus. We'll just say they are the others. What they wanted is they wanted Jesus to get the political powers off their back. They want him to do something revolutionary. They want him to get all the bad people. You see, their filter, our filter is all jacked up. Oftentimes we come to Jesus and we just want him to tell us the rules of how to do something. At other times we think, Jesus, you just need to get rid of all these people that are bad people. We don't even interpret things properly because we're always expecting that he's going to meet our expectations. That's Jesus meet our expectations. You see, both the churchy people and the others, both of them lived a life in which they promoted an us versus them mentality. Well, these people aren't as religious as we are, so we're better than they are. Well, we're being oppressed and we need someone to set us free. Both of them created an us versus them mentality, and neither group of people, neither of these folks, neither of these groups ever took really deeply and really seriously the reality that Jesus had to die for them. They wanted Jesus to promote their agenda. We want Jesus to promote our agendas, and Jesus is not interested in that. So even having all this laid out, being around Jesus and observing Jesus, our filter, their filter is all messed up. And you see, the third reason is this, and it's really close to the second, but just in case that didn't affect or touch any of you or me, we still got this one catch-all here. So we know faith must be a gift because the people who are closest to Jesus didn't get it. We know faith has got to be a gift because our processor is all jacked up. And the third one is this. We never actually seek the real Jesus. There's no one who actually seeks the real Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, the God of the Bible. We are always after a God we can control. We want a God who's nice. We want a God who explains everything. We want a God who owes us. We want a God who does what we want. I read a guy this week that said this. He said, we often want a president rather than a king. Wow, what a great statement. Yeah, we, we want a Jesus that we elect. We want a Jesus that we choose. We want a Jesus that represents our interests. We want a Jesus that we're in control over. But Jesus is actually a king. He's sovereign. He doesn't really pay much attention to his approval rating. And what we learned last week is this king that we have that's sovereign is one who is incredibly passionate and loving, who pursues people. What we actually learned last week when John Paul was talking about the crucifixion is that we have a king who is willing to suffer on behalf of his people, who is willing as king to lay down his life. He is a suffering king. He is a servant king. Faith must be a gift. It must be a gift. Now, here's my second point. 
And it's very similar and perhaps just saying the first one in a different way. I read this this week too and hadn't heard this before. Apparently this, this statement I'm going to tell you has been around a long time, but it was new to me. So I'm going to give it to you. Faith is a gift. And secondly, the stone was rolled away, not so Jesus could get out, but so we can get in. Never heard that till this week. The stone was rolled away, not so Jesus could get out. Let me tell you, I thought for a lot of years that's why the stone was rolled away. Because how's he going to get out of the tomb if the stone isn't removed from the mouth, right? The stone wasn't rolled away so Jesus could get out. It's because we need to get in. And that means that we need to get inside the tomb. And if you're wrestling or thinking about Christianity, or if you are a believer and haven't really thought seriously about the resurrection, get inside the tomb. Look at what's there. Think about what's going on all around it. Think what's going on inside the tomb. Read the, account, read the accounts. Reflect. Deal with your doubts. Bring them. Because the stone is rolled away so that you can get in. And you can see and think like John and Peter and wrestle. So that you can weep and wonder, well, is this true or not? Could this be true? Who who took this? Who stole him? Be honest with yourself about what you think about the resurrection and the empty tomb. Verbalize that stuff and investigate it. Think. Wrestle. Get inside the tomb. But more than that, get into Jesus. Get into Jesus. Get into all that he is. You see, when the text says, I think it's verse 8, let me check, yes, when he saw and believed, when we say, when the Bible says that John and Peter believed, it's really saying that they believed into, that's one of John's great statements in his 21 chapters, he loves that little phrase, they believed into, it's actually throughout the Old Testament, throughout all the New Testament. That there is a difference between believing in and believing into. A huge difference. And when we're saying get into Jesus, what I'm trying to say is don't just believe in Jesus, believe into Jesus. Now this story is almost 100% true, but not quite, okay? And I'll tell you why at the end. Do you remember what it was like when you were little, when you were learning how to get into the pool? When you were learning to get into the water, remember how nervous you were? Maybe some of you weren't. But with my kids, especially my girls, I'll use them as examples um, because they're, they're close in age. Um, when they were young, remember, not all this is true. I'll tell you what's not true at the end. So this is somewhat fictional. Just assume that. So we go to the pool. The girls would be nervous about getting in the water. Dabney is older than Bergen. So oftentimes I would get in the water, see if you can relate to this, and I'd hold my arms out. And I'd say, okay, girls, you know, one at a time, jump, right? Dabney, jump. It's going to be okay. You're going to be fine. She just learned how to get in the water. She's nervous about getting, just jump into my arms. Everything will be fine. And she eventually would jump, and I'd catch her in the water, and everything was great, and splash, and yada, yada. Dad, do it again. Do it again, right? Remember these kind of stories? But Bergen was hesitant. And what if Dabney turned to Bergen, and she said, Dabney? I mean, she said, Bergen? Do you believe that daddy would catch you? Berg would say, yes. 
yes, I believe dad would catch me. And then what if Dabney said to Bergen, well, why don't you jump? No, I won't jump. And then finally she did. What I'm saying is, there is a difference between Bergen believing that I would catch her, that's believing in, and then actually jumping in herself, that's believing in too. Does that make sense? It's one thing for Bergen to know because she watched Dabney jump into my arms that I am capable, I am able, I am willing, I will catch her. It's one thing for her to know that I will do that. That's believing in, yes, Dabney, I believe that dad will catch me. But it is completely something else for Bergen to jump in herself and for her to jump into me. At that point, she doesn't just believe that I can catch her. Oh, I'm catching her. Now, here's the truth of the story. Bergen was never afraid about jumping in the water. And Dabney wasn't much either. But nevertheless, it's the best I could do to illustrate that for you. John is saying we have got to believe in to Jesus. We can't just believe in him. We've got to get into him. And what it means to get into Jesus is that we must bring Jesus into the center of our lives. What that means is that we need to bring Jesus into the center of who we are. And that means that it changes everything about who we are. So it means that we can live our lives pursuing people. You see, if we bring Jesus into the center of our lives, then what he has done and how he lives affects the way we live. And we start becoming more like him. So to bring Jesus into our lives means that as Jesus pursued people, we will pursue people. He left heaven and came to earth to pursue us, right? So if I bring Jesus into the center of my life, I have understood that he came for me and that he lived for me and he died for me and he did that for the church, for us. And as we bring Jesus into the center of our lives, we don't just think, well, he died for me. What he, what he did in dying for me is that he enabled me to go and pursue other people. It also means that we can think of our lives as not about self, but about sacrifice. Jesus lived a life of sacrifice. To bring Jesus into my life means that I don't look at my job as being just about me. I don't look at my family as being just about me. I don't look at my relationships as being just about me or, or everything has to be happy or great all the time. It means that I ought to expect that my life is going to be full of sacrifice. Remember what Jesus said? If anyone wants to follow me, let him take up his cross and die daily. We don't like that too much, do we? I don't want to die to my plans. I don't want to die to my power. I don't want to die to my insights. I don't want to die to all of my resources and gifts, do I? Do you? But to bring Jesus into the center of our lives means that we're willing to die. And you realize, oh, this is really the secret of what makes relationships go. Is that we got to be willing to yield and die to our own thoughts, Right? Otherwise, you just have conflicting agendas all the time. But if you've got two people that are willing to die and willing to serve one another and care for one another, it changes everything. It means all kinds of things. 
Let me give you a few more. I'll cut out some of what I was going to say because we need to move on. It means that we are constantly losing our appetite to always defend ourselves. It means that we get to fight being motivated by fear. Do you realize how much we do is motivated by fear? Well, I better do this because if I don't do this, this person's going to be upset. I better say this because if I don't say this, then this person's going to think I don't like them. Do you realize how much of our lives is just motivated by fear? How many decisions we make because we're afraid of something? To bring Jesus into the center of our lives means we want to fight always being motivated by fear. It means that we're growing in a desire in which we want to be motivated by love. Just love. Just love. And that means sometimes we got to speak the truth, and that's not easy, because we have to do that in love too. But how many of us do things simply motivated by love? Being generous. Patient. Assuming the best in others. To bring Jesus into the center of our lives means that the truth of God, the gospel, the good news is becoming more and more important. We don't grow away from Jesus' death and resurrection. We grow further into it. We go deeper into his resurrection and deeper into his crucifixion. And if ever in our lives we think of growth and becoming more and more like Jesus apart from death and resurrection, apart from crucifixion and new life, we are missing the gospel. We're just thinking new thoughts. We're just doing new things that are disconnected from what Jesus has done. To bring Jesus into the center of our lives means that we become more, become more and more like him. Now let me tell you why this is important. This is important that we talk about faith as a gift. It's important that we talk about that the stone was rolled away, not so Jesus could get out, so that we could get in. This is really, really important for a couple reasons. One is that our culture has a really different view of faith. Really different view. You know the culture that we're all a part of? Like, it's not out there, right? Like, it's us living out there. Culture has a really different view of faith. What the culture says, and I see this a lot in athletics, believe that this can happen. If you want to win on Saturdays and your favorite team, you got to have a team that, that, that believes they're going to win. Because from our culture's vantage point, if you can believe something, then hopefully you can bring it into existence. If you believe it enough, it will happen. It's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy, Right? That's the way our culture views faith. You just need to believe it, and hopefully, if you believe it enough, you can actually make it happen, because there's no way it's going to happen unless you believe it could happen. See that circle, that cycle? Here's the other reason why this is so important, because most of us have grown up in the church, and the church has really misrepresented faith. Maybe not knowingly, maybe not intentionally, but a lot of us have heard something very different from what the Bible actually teaches. See, most of us have grown up in churches in which people have taught or, or whether it's the way they function or whatever, as if faith is a work. And so, here, bow your head, close your eyes. If you want to come to Jesus, raise your hand. 
All right, those of you that raise your hand, repeat this prayer after me, right? So you want to get saved? Pray this way. And most people have thought, oh, well, this is why I'm saved, because I prayed a prayer this way, right? My faith has to be worded in this particular way. We have grown up in situations in which the church has treated faith like a work. And not only that, they view it like a switch that goes on and off. Another bad example, but it's the best I could do. Jenny continues to tell me that I need to eat better. And what do I say to that? Yeah, I'll start in January. Well, i got to figure out something to where I'm going to eat how I want on the weekends, right? Yeah, I'll do what you're saying during the week, but on the weekends, I want to eat the way I want to eat, really want to eat, right? You need to eat better. Well, not right now. I'll just put it off. That is oftentimes how faith is presented. Don't delay. Stop waiting as if you're the one in control and you can just flip on faith whenever you want. As if you can just hold off and wait until, you know, January 1st and do it as a New Year's resolution like everything else. The church oftentimes has misrepresented faith, either from the standpoint of it being work or from the standpoint of it's just something that you can do whenever you want to do it. And that is not the way the Bible talks about faith at all. It is a gift. And the closest people to Jesus didn't even get it. And if they didn't get it, there's no way that we are. Because our filter's messed up. We got our own agendas. Jesus has to do something. You see, for Christianity, this is what is true. Something has to happen before we can believe. It's not that we believe and make something happen. Something has to happen before we can believe. That way we get to believe into something, not just about something. Well, what ties all this together is this simple little statement. Jesus is alive. What makes faith possible, what encourages us to bring our doubts and wrestle with things that we are struggling with, question, to ponder and think, Jesus is alive. Do you know why I go and visit the graveside of my grandparents at times when I'm on vacation or on study leave? Sometimes I'll go to East Tennessee or Southwest Corner of Virginia and visit the gravesites of my grandparents. Now, I still have one grandmother that's alive, but my other ones. And I'll go to that graveside and sometimes I'll sit there. You know why? Because they're not with me. Obvious statement, right? I want to remember them. I go to their graveside because... They're important to me, and I feel close to them. It brings to mind things that they've said or done. In my case, it brings to mind things that I might have said at their memorial service or graveside service. I can think back to my experience with my grandparents, to who they were, what they said, how we lived together, what we did, on and on. I go because in some way I feel close to them when I'm there. And particularly for my grandmother on my mother's side, my grandmother and granddad are, are buried at a beautiful location in East Tennessee. It overlooks where my mom would have gone to high school if the high school had been built right before, uh, it was built after she went, but it was right there just down the road from my grandparents' place. 
the mountains are in the distance, and I can just think about resurrection and what it's going to be like when Jesus returns and all these bodies are raised. Do you realize that as you sit here today, that we do not know exactly where Jesus was entombed? Do you realize that? We have no idea exactly where Jesus was entombed. And when you think about that, about the only possible explanation that I know that I've been able to read and I've received this from others, is that the disciples didn't care about the place where Jesus was entombed because they never felt like they lost him. And that is exactly what Jesus told them would happen. It's better for you that I go so that the Spirit will come and he'll remind you of everything that I've said and everything that I've done. So the disciples in the first century weren't lining up at the tomb to set up a place to worship. They weren't going there every day to conjure up deep feelings about this Savior, Jesus, this person that they knew and heard things from. They still had him. Think about that. And we can too. And the invitation that Jesus gives to all of us, whether we have believed for 50 years or whether we are just exploring Christianity, Jesus gives us all the invitation. Come and see. Get into me. Look in the tomb. Wrestle. Think. Ponder. Faith is a gift. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love. That is a love. It is a love that produces faith in us. It's a love in which we can bring our doubts and you answer. It's a love in which we bring our questions and you ask us, what are we really looking for? It's a love in which you help us understand that we're not always looking for the right thing at all. It's a love that reminds us that you are alive and that the world will never be the same. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.